0: Today, I'm joined by Andrew Noble, who is the director of Noble and Associates and Logit. Andrew, welcome.
1: Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me along. Great uh, great to be on your show, and hopefully we can share some information about the crypto space.
0: Absolutely. And, and crypto is one of those weird places that has some real zealots, I think you could describe it as, and some other people that are curious and other people that are totally just you know, off the record, don't want to talk about it, um, not interesting to them. What got you involved in crypto and and why why is it interesting to to your life today?
1: Okay, so some background. Um, I I started life as a tax accountant and you know was a tax accountant for years, but I always had an interest in technology. I went through a phase of building an outsource operation in Chennai back in the sort of mid 2000s and through that process I actually developed an increased interest in technology because we're moving information backwards between the continents. It's through that process that I came across what the government was doing with Standard Business Reporting, and that was uh, XBRL-based um, regulatory stuff. And being in the tax space, I thought, gee, this is super interesting. And you know, th- through my investigation and dealing with some other guys in the tech space, I decided to get involved in building an SBR, tax lodgement platform, which today is Logit. So that was a sort of ten-year development phase, and you know, through that development, we uh, we've ultimately put together a platform that allows an accountant or even a business owner to easily pull accounting data in from any downstream uh, accounting platform, typically SME-based stuff, uh, Xero, QuickBooks, Myob, pull it into the Logit platform, wrap it up into a format that's suitable for the regulator using these SBR principles and push it through to the regulator which which in this case is uh, the tax office so you know through through that journey developed a lot of interest in tech and and you know i've been watching what's been happening in the uh, in the crypto space particularly from the from the standpoint of my interest which is more to do with audit so you know how do you use how do you use crypto based technologies to refine the audit trail um, through anywhere from your um, you know from ERP based operations right through to transaction based operations and you know that's where I've sort of realised that the real power that comes with with crypto yes it's great for ch- uh, for switching value between participants on a network but it's also super super useful for tracking activity. And also controlling and uh, controlling transaction activity at a computer type level. So, you know, if you want to automate transactions, you could certainly use crypto as part of you know part of what you use as your stack for um, for automation.
0: So, when when you're thinking about crypto and your applications, you're not looking specifically at any type of coin as such. It's more or it's more of a token, or you're looking at the blockchain. What's most useful to you?
1: Yes. Okay. So obviously there are applications that are actually sold on the marketplace today, which are positioned for you know for ERP transaction tracking, any kind of any kind of trade based activity. Uh, there are act- applications out there, but generally most of those applications are pri- you know private networks of crypto products. So. What sort of come out of this space over the last couple of years is okay. If you are going to go down that route of using cryptography and blockchain for uh, for your transaction based activity, should you use private chains or should you use public chains? The problem with public chains is that they obviously have they have the the issue with the fact that a lot of the activity on there is is public. So it's a public chain, right? So. The upside of a public chain is that there's a lot of activity and no one actually controls that public chain. So so you've got the upside and the downside and, you know, organisations like EY have sort of really pushed ahead in, in this space and they've come up with some solutions to that problem, which is to use something called zero knowledge proofs. So now what enterprises can do is they don't have to worry about getting caught in the silo of someone's private chain. They can go and use a public chain, and then and then they can use that public chain confidently with their private information striped using these zero knowledge proofs. So you get the best of both worlds, and that pretty much looks, you know, at least from my point of view as a you know researcher and a hacker in the space, that that looks like the ultimate uh, ultimate possibility and outcome is to use public chain and zero knowledge proofs as a way to record your very private enterprise level activity.
0: Could you still use this same type of private chains for the transfer of assets? So being securities, other uh, in shares or bonds or unit trusts and so forth. You know, The, the Australian superannuation industry is very big. Um, often they're transacting between themselves with, with many transactions. Is there something that they could potentially use uh, as a private chain to facilitate much easier uh, transactions between themselves?
1: Well, you know that ASX has built a blockchain. And obviously, that's very much an ASX product, right? So ultimately, you'll be able to, and and, and I suppose in our Australian marketplace, if you're going to be trading on the ASX in a year or so, you'll be using their blockchain. But if you think about it from the point of view of, well, whose blockchain is it? It's still their blockchain. They are the instigators of setting up the project. They funded it. Very much a niche ASX platform. Now, if you go out into the the broader market and you say, well, what are the big public chains? So obviously you've got um, Bitcoin, and Bitcoin's got its downside from the point of view of um, programmability. But there's obviously Ethereum. So you've got the Ethereum public blockchain how would you possibly use the Ethereum public blockchain for your very private transactions? And that's where this uh, new level of technology is coming in, which is to actually be able to use that public chain, which if you think about it, a public chain has a much higher degree of longevity and it's probably got a much bigger network. There's a lot more people that use it. There's a lot more developers that work on it. And you know, as a, as a side consequence, it's probably it's probably safer in some respects if you can protect your transactions on there, you know, from from the public view.
0: Are, are these uh, systems need, do they need to be this small for them to actually work and be efficient? I, I, I've read quite a lot around uh, the transaction time to process um, Bitcoin transactions is very slow, um, mm-hmm. and it, the, the security protocol doesn't doesn't permit such large number of transactions happening is that something that you know is this an example of a system where a small group of people can transact because it doesn't need the very high frequency of transactions that would typically be seen on on the ASX traditionally
1: i think when it comes to that level of transactions that you're speaking about you know you've got new you've got advances in this technology so you've got ethereum 2.0 on the way uh, and then you've got these, what they call side chains. You can bolt a side chain onto the main chain and you can get much higher volume of transaction using these newer advanced technologies, even using some of these public public chain technologies.
0: Let's maybe transition a little bit to Bitcoin as, mm-hmm. as an asset, as a currency. What do you define it as?
1: Well, you know, what is it, is it a a security or is it a currency? You know what, I think this all comes back to how we've been looking at things from an historical perspective and how we've used our language to classify things because what we're looking at now is something entirely new. You know, these these, um, blockchain technologies weren't there and certainly haven't been used extensively by enterprise before. So we've come across something entirely new and I think we're trying to use our same semantic frameworks to to frame and classify what is what is a new thing but you know the way i see it is bitcoin could be both i mean you could use it as uh as as a liquid currency uh and i know and i know there's a you know there's a number of large u.s enterprises that are moving to store bitcoin in their treasury or you could treat it as a security it comes back to what do you want to use it for
0: it's interesting because there is a lot of discussion around Bitcoin being used as a way to to launder money and for other illegal uh, sources because it's decentralized. It it does have some privacy alongside it. Whether whether the privacy is is really there, who knows? Um, but you know, there's always questions about Bitcoin and whether it can survive given the nefarious uh, transactions that also happen on the system. What do you say about that?
1: Well, we only have to look at what's happened in Australia with the banks. And, you know, f- you know, fiat hasn't held up too well when it comes to to money laundering and nefarious use. So all of you know, all of these things have their have their downsides. And, you know, any anything which you can use to switch value can potentially be used by bad guys or good guys. And ultimately, I think what will happen is the regular it's going to be up to the regulators to decide how they define and i guess ultimately control to try to prevent for bad guys using these things and and i guess that's that's ultimately potentially a risk that we're all facing in the in the crypto community is well how far do they go i mean you know what what are we looking at at the moment there's a lot of talk about and i know there's white paper out in the us about keeping track of the activity that happens through these exchanges so currently exchanges are you know core Core node in these networks is that always going to be the case? You know, in in the future, let's just imagine, you know, when wallet wallet activity reaches a sort of a crescendo, it's possible we might not all bother to use exchange public exchanges anyway. We might all use um, decentralized exchanges. So what will that mean? I don't know. I mean, I think I think you're going to see the regulators constantly trying to clamp down on this, and it could be one of those things which are incredibly hard to clamp down on in the long run because it's it's one of those sort of hydra hydro animals that keep sprouting new heads all over the place and you know how, how do you put how do you put something like that back in the in the box it really is a genie that's out of the box and I say to the regulators good luck but I guess at the end of the day we when it comes to dealing with bad guys we've got to do something I, I, I don't know what the long-term outcome will be I, I can I think I can see some of what's coming but ultimately we can't all see everything that's coming right
0: it gives me a bit of a flashback to to torrents and the sharing of music and Napster and, and, and yes, that sort Napster. of thing yep. where there was almost a decentralized. Well, Napster actually did have a, a central server, but a lot of these torrents don't have central servers. They've got a torrent that you can download or a magnet link and it connects up to people. I don't know the, the technology, but that you can connect and you don't know where that other person is and you can pull pieces from around the world and, and I guess rebuild a, a program or a movie from millions of potential users. Is that the same sort of technology that you can almost create with Bitcoin, where it is very hard to to shut down because there are so many people in the chain?
1: It's exactly the same, except that obviously it's building with a new set of principles around, you know, solving for double spend problem. It just means that that ledge is super secure, and you know you can't get a double spend happening, and you you know you, you can't hack that network so easily. So it's actually it's very similar to a Tor network, but it's got new sets of properties which make it really useful for these types of things that we're talking about, which is value shifting and tracking, uh, you know, tracking transaction-based activity.
0: How much do you think the regulation that's coming is not so much about regulating the illegal activity, but trying to protect the current monetary system?
1: Look, it's hard to say, but you know, we we know that the current fiat monetary system is a leaky boat. It's a leaky boat from the point of view that it's built you know it's built around debt and we know that you know for a debt-based monetary system to survive it needs it needs constant priming and that's why you know that's why the regulators are constantly keen to uh, ke- constantly keen to try to get a little a little bit of inflation into the system because without that inflation in the system you know you could probably see what we've already seen with negative interest rates. What does negative interest rates even mean? We have to pay someone to look after our money. That's how, you know, no one can find a good use for it. You know, from from that standpoint, we know that there's fundamental issues with the design principles behind the fiat fiat currency system with fractional reserve banking, Um, you know, and I think what we're looking at today is we're looking at regulators that are desperately trying to hold this, you know, hold this system together in the face of what is, I would say, an existential threat, to their business model, um, you know, and that business model is completely different because if you look at the fiat-based system, it's very much a centralized model. You've got, you've got to have guys in suits, you know, in big shiny high-rises, you talk about carbon footprints, but you've got guys in big shiny high-rises who very small groups of them come together and make decisions across what is a very complex Business domain, and you know they come up with these arbitrary policies around how they move interest rates around. What I noticed in my game was, at the peak of the coronavirus, when the government was handing out you know JobKeeper and um, cash flow boost, just look, just looking into these uh, running ATO running balance accounts, see the ATO just simply, I guess, with blessing of the of the Reserve Bank, simply creating entries in those. Accounts to represent cash flow boost. They were essentially making money out of fresh air, and I saw these credits just arriving in client bank accounts. And I went, "Oh my god, this is the monetary system, the monetary system that we think of today as this fine line between okay, we've got the central reserve making all these wise decisions, and then we've got the government over here with these, you know, centrally arbitrated decisions around how they're going to allocate all these uh, all these funds." Well no that's actually one system when you look at the monetary system it is government and it is reserve bank working together it's one system and you can see that as i said when you look at these um, these running balance accounts so and and you and you also and you have to look into you know what happens with uh, social security so social security money you know money being made by the government at will they they want to be able to do that because uh, under the model that they that they are operating through, that that is that is the way they believe, and I, I'm not saying whether they should or shouldn't believe that. I'm simply pointing out that that's the model they use to try to hold the monetary system together and try to hold the economy together. But obviously what happens is you know people start to look sideways at that system and it's it's no no engineer would build a system that is so so flaky. Who can trust it? How can you work with it? And I think that's what's what's starting to happen. People look are looking at that and going, it's too arbitrary. It's an, an arbitrary behaviors bring risk to a system. So you look at an arbitrary-based monetary system that's uh, you know that's got lots of debt-based leverage, and then you compare it with a system like Bitcoin, which is very algorithmic and very controlled by the original set of rules that were defined by In this case, let's say one, you know, one creator, one guy came out and built this thing. And, you know, you can see the whole network that's built up around that. So, you know, you're you're looking at this thing going, well, I I can actually see, I can see something completely new evolving uh, against what has been there for, you know, for hundreds of years. And, you know, I think we're at the early stages and I think it's going to be a battle. So, you know, that battle is yet to be, yet to be completely played out.
0: We've seen a huge amount of monetary debasement, not just in Australia, but around the world. And um, I think one of the reasons why Bitcoin has started to get more and more attention is people have caught on to this fiat game, as you describe it as. But is Bitcoin really the digital gold? You know, we've seen gold that's been operating for thousands of years and been a store of wealth. How, how does Bitcoin make that next leap?
1: Look, I mean, I've, I've, heard, I've heard the analogy with gold. And, you know, I think that's maybe that's a piece of it. That's interesting. But I think more, what's more interesting is what is what is Bitcoin? Yes, it's got a nice symbol, but it goes way beyond that. Let's, let's look at the number of wallets that are around. So wallets are what people use to control their Bitcoin. Just in July, there were 3.5 million wallet downloads. So the number of wallets has been growing exponentially. The actual unique addresses, which once again, associated with the wallets and the activity on the network. So this all comes back to the network. Those unique addresses are growing exponentially. So more and more people coming onto this network, using it. Thousands of exchanges around the globe. So you talk talk about something like the US dollar, which is obviously, you know, this has been the supreme global, I guess, uh, monetary standard for a while. And yet... You know, in 10 years, you've probably got more, you've got more exchanges around the world that handle Bitcoin than handle US dollars. And certainly the way, the way that you handle one versus the other is very different. I'll give you an example. I deal with um, some guys overseas who helped me with software development. I picked up a new developer in Japan. He had trouble getting a bank account. so I couldn't, I couldn't do my transfers through and I'm, I'll spruik them, OFX. I couldn't use OFX to to transfer for, to him because in Japan he was finding it hard to get to get an account. Well, guess what? Didn't take him five seconds to get himself a, a Bitcoin wallet account, and now all I do is I do my conversion rate on the day that I pay him, and I send him Bitcoin. And there was no there was no ten ton of regulatory paperwork in the way of me actually paying this guy for the services that he was rendering me. Then, then you have a look at the Bitcoin mining operations. You've got one Bitcoin mine in Russia that's doing four and a half thousand kilowatt worth of energy per hour, helping to hold the Bitcoin network together. You know, weigh that up against your five your one five kilowatt air conditioning system, and realize that if you try to stick a battery in your house to run your five kilowatt uh, aircon system, well, guess what? That that battery is going to be drained an hour, in an, in one hour. So you've got this massive energy usage that holds this whole network to, together you've got a plethora of developers around the platform that are always patching on working on these um, on these decentralized um, crypto pro, uh, projects so you know wh- where is where is the value proposition i think the value proposition is in the cost of the transactions Co- super cost effective i mean we saw we saw 1 uh, one, 1 billion dollar worth of transaction Change hands on the bit, on the Bitcoin network for four, four odd dollars or six dollars, something crazy like that. So that's where the value. You know, that's one of the value propositions: low cost value switching on the network, and then wealth storage. You know, you you can trust the network is going to store your wealth based on a set of um, algorithmic parameters. So where's where's the ultimate value in this thing? It's in the network and. Have a look into network effects. When you look into network effects, the bigger these networks get, the more valuable they become. And I think that's where traditional analysts have problems is trying to value these things and go, well, how do you value something that doesn't have a discounted net net present value? You know, there's no, you don't get, you know, you don't get dividends off this thing. So where's the value? The value is in the network. And the question is, well, you know, how, how do you value that thing?
0: Yeah, that, that is that is the big question and particularly with the amount of volatility we've seen in the actual Bitcoin trading price, you know, a lot of concern around having no intrinsic value and this representing some sort of a Ponzi scheme where more and more people come in and therefore the, the value is, is promoted and the narrative that comes alongside Bitcoin is the ability to fight against the elites and fight against the fiat system. That brings a lot of volatility and I guess that's going to be one of the challenges for making it a much more of a mainstream style of product, how can you try to you know, feel comfortable that when you put your, your savings there or you get paid in Bitcoin, that you're comfortable with that end asset value?
1: Dead right. I mean, I, th- I think what's happening is the network is trying to find, you know, it's trying to find equilibrium and it's still early days. I mean, we've had this network running for 10, 11 years. So we're, we're a long way from finding equilibrium on this thing. But, you know, I think the types of people that trust it implicitly, are typically people in those countries where they have the most corruption. African, maybe some Asian countries. Well, guess what? A little bit of volatility for those guys is nothing compared to having a a government that can, at any moment, completely debase your currency, exactly like what happened in Zimbabwe, which is actually where I'm from. So, you know, you've got people in those kinds of countries that implicitly trust Bitcoin, even if there is a, di- uh, a high degree of volatility, and I think what's happening is in the West, we're now starting to look at our own currencies and go, "Well, okay, what's happening with fiat?" We're starting to see, you know, we're starting to see how the game gets played. We understand that fiat is, I, you know, it's IOUs, and ultimately, a lot of it starts at, at a centralised level. Someone, someone somewhere, starts to make some decisions around how they'll um, how they'll propagate IOUs and and use leverage to lift the whole thing. Through debt monetization, I think when it comes back to Bitcoin, it's still early days. And guess what? The, the people who are mostly involved in it these days. Love the volatility because they use it for, for trading. So I don't see the the volatility as a problem. And I think it's it's probably useful at this early stage. And we do get you know we do get these phases where you get run on the network like we've just had. Which there's lots of euphoria, lots of buying, spike in spike in wallet activity, spike in address activity. Lots more money goes into buying mining gear and all the rest. And my, my analysis that I've done is, has been focused on looking at the cost of running the network relative to the given value of the network on any, any given day back through history to 2016. And generally, there's a correlation between the cost of the network. And the value of the network, the value of the network's very easy to find because it's you know you can see it's the number of bitcoins times the value of the bitcoin that's that's a, that's there, that's ever been created. The cost of running the network a little bit more difficult, but in saying that you know you can you can come up with some rough idea on a day by day basis based on the complexity of of the network, how big it's become, and when you factor back and look at that relationship, what I can see is through time. There's, there's definitely a strong relationship between the cost of operating the network and the value of the network, except when we have these peaks in exuberance. So what I've seen is the cost of the, the the relationship between the cost of the network and the value of the network is actually it's getting probably in step changes getting lower as time goes goes by, and I think that's a function of the of the efficiency of the network. As this network gets bigger, it becomes more more efficient. And I think that that is an indicator. You can use this as a as a method to actually see whether the, whether the valuations are stretched because the the ratios, you know, they come out of shape once, like over since you know probably since December January up until now, you know, that ratio is sort of stretched, and you know you just look at this what's typically pretty flat line of. Of a relationship, now suddenly you get this bit of a spike, and I think after the spike, this this network's going to show that it's even more efficient relative to its value. So you can you can look at you know points when do you get into this net when do you get into this network? Well, probably you don't want to get in when when there's lots of uh, euphoria around.
0: Likewise, when you want to get out, you need to make sure that there's the liquidity to get out too.
1: Yeah, and look, I mean that that's the great thing. I I haven't seen any problem with the liquidity in the in the. At least in the Bitcoin network, obviously there are other cryptos that have liquidity issues, but you know on the exchange that I'm on, I don't see any any liquidity issue there. Is is that something that you've seen, Alex? Uh,
0: no, but I've seen anecdotally on Twitter people asking how can they get their money out of Coinbase, for example, and it's very easy to buy, but to actually get the money back into your wallet and then back into an actual bank is being quite <laughs> challenging. And so that's a an interesting piece. Maybe that's a technological uh issue between the wallets and and the traditional physical banks
1: yeah i i don't know about about coinbase i've i've been using btc markets in australia and i've found that they're pretty good you know i've tested they send your money straight back so yes it's the old story i mean you sell out and you know the and the exchange ends up holding all your holding all your fiat you know that's not not a great outcome it is
0: it is strange where at the moment we still price Bitcoin in the US dollar predominantly. Um, it's got this sort of link between, you know, the the value of Bitcoin versus the US dollar, and and so there's this Tether effectively. I know there is a Tether as a as a type of um, crypto as well. But I, I got to ask the question coming back to sort of the pressure from governments as they need to reconsider that we've seen some regulation discussion in the in the US. We've seen it in the in the EU as well. What happens if governments decide that they need to get in on the game and create their own type of digital currency? And we've seen that already in China. Um, There's even been a test of it. Isn't that a threat to this traditional Bitcoin-style network?
1: We know they are. I mean, there's there's plenty of banks around the world that are creating their own central bank digital currencies. And I think what's happening in the US, as best I can tell, is essentially Treasury Reserve are allowing banks to make decisions at a, at a at a bank level, how they how they will deal with with cryptocurrency and what they will support, and whether they'll build their own CBDCs at a at a local bank level, um, maybe something like Tether, right? Obviously, China's completely different. China's got a very high highly centralized model, and they you know they're pretty adamant they will control their own currency right down to the to the user level. We know that places like um, like the US. You've actually got two circuits for the monetary system. You've got the circuit between the banks and the central reserve and the treasury. So they have a, essentially their own money. They circulate in that circuit. And then the banks produce money for the public that circulates in another circuit. And I think what we're going to see is we're, we're going to see private circuit, which is all of these uh, all of these decentralized cryptos, uh, Bitcoin, et cetera. So that's your decentralized private circuit. And then sure, the banks are going to have their circuits, but let's let's be honest. I mean, Bitcoin was built 10 years ago by one guy and a massive amount of developers and support has grown up around the project. Completely decentralized, completely bottom up, very different to what we're seeing with centralized approach, which is you know, a bunch of bureaucrats get in a room, make a decision that they're going to build a currency. And then, you know, they all have this hand wringing about, right, what's going to happen? How's this going to work and all the rest? And guess what? It probably ne- it never pans out in the way that something private pans out. So no doubt they're going to build their own things. But when when did you last get in a car that was built by a government and feel safe?
0: Uh, that's, a, I think, a fantastic place to leave the conversation because... Uh, <laughs> It is It's one of those things that uh, the governments have really had a very poor run on on many many things um, histor- historically they've been quite quite good, um, but of late the bureaucracy seems to over you know, overpowering and and really causing a lot of problems and Bitcoin is is just one of those examples, and crypto more you know, more broadly is uh, one of those ways that the people can actually choose to vote for a different way of almost government. And um, it's a fascinating time. And, and
1: there, there is the exact problem because if you hold power today, and if you control the monetary system, you're unlikely to hand over that power without a fight. So that's that, that's where no, nothing's certain. There's no guarantees, and we, you know we we can't know exactly how all of this is going to play out. But I suspect that the. You know, these decentralized networks are even now too powerful any, for any government on the planet. No doubt they're going to try to control them. But I think ultimately, uh, ultimately, over the next 10 years, you'll see completely new structures emerging. You've heard of DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. I think those are ultimately the challenges to government.
0: It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew.
1: No worries, Alex. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.